All right, John 18, 12 through 27 this morning. You know, in the early days of the movies, uh, obviously before my time, um, the audience had to, uh, they had to have the flow of the action in the movies explained to them. You remember this? And this was usually done by the insertion of a caption. So what would happen is a blank screen would come on with some text on it, uh, usually in white letters because everything was in black and white, and it was describing the next phase of action. And cowboy movies were one of the, the big rage uh, back in that period, and so you'd often find a hero, you know, fighting the, the desperados who had, you know, ambushed a stagecoach uh, in the mountain somewhere, and then, you know, the screen, the blank screen would come up, and, and then it would say something like, meanwhile, back at the ranch. And then the next picture, you'd be at the ranch, and there is a beautiful maiden all gagged and, and tied to a chair there with sticks of dynamite, you know, underneath her chair. And, and there would be a close-up of her, you know, the heavily darkened eyes, the way they did it back in those silent picture days. They were wide with fear and despair. And, and then the screen would go blank again, right? And you'd get some more captions up there that would say something like, you know, help is on the way. You know, and then you would go to this hero on his, on his white horse, uh, galloping along, coming to rescue the damsel in distress. It was a very exciting thing, at least for the people watching the movies back in those days. Now it's a very different art altogether, movie making, isn't it? Uh, we're used to following multiple storylines at the same time in movies today. In fact, we have shows now that are, that are even uh, done as though they're in real time. Uh, many of you will remember the series 24 with its hero, Jack Bauer, which was so popular a decade ago. Well, in this section of text that we're looking at this morning, we're actually following two parallel stories. These are stories that are going on at the same time. And the action surrounds Peter on the one hand and Jesus on the other hand. Both of the stories are actually happening within sight of each other. In other words, it's possible for Jesus to see Peter in the near distance. And of course, for Peter to see Jesus. Peter is in an outer area, but the gate is wide and large. And inside the gated area, in the courtyard, Jesus is being arraigned by these authorities who have arrested him. And there's a sense in which both, in this story, Jesus and Peter are on trial. One writer put it like this, quote, Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing. Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. So there are in this story a number of things that come out, and this is how I want to kind of guide us through today, uh, through three main points. So the first is, I want to look at apparent failure, and then real weakness, and then finally, true strength. Let's look at these three things together. First of all, notice apparent failure. Verse 12, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. 
Now, if you remember where we left off in last week's text, verses 1 through 11, this verse almost comes as an anti-climax, doesn't it, to what we've just been reading. When the group of men, perhaps as many as a thousand, probably at least as many as 600 soldiers, come looking for Jesus in the garden that night with Judas, with their lanterns and torches, their swords, their spears, and their determination is to come in with with shock and awe and just overwhelm Jesus and his disciples by their sheer force, and yet no sooner have they arrived and something remarkable happens, doesn't it? We see this whole crowd of soldiers literally fall down like dominoes. They they fall over each other as the impact of what Jesus says hits them. I, I am. And they are decimated by those words. Those those words of self-identification by none other than the God of Israel. So after we've read that, in last week's text, we come to verse 12, and it almost seems anticlimactic, doesn't it? To read that Jesus is now manhandled. He's bound. He's led away to trial. He who came to set people free is now bound by them. And there's an interesting connection here, too. A connection that's actually signaled to us here in the text. In the text, the high priest Caiaphas is introduced by words that we've already read in John's Gospel. Back in chapter 11, verse 50. Do you remember what Caiaphas had said to the Sanhedrin, the the 70-member ruling council of the Jews? Do you remember what he had said to them back in John 11? One man should die for the people. Caiaphas had said that. When they were talking about the Jesus problem... Way back then, that's what Caiaphas had said. And it's Passover. And it's appropriate that just as the Passover lamb was killed so that Israel might be free of its enemies back in Exodus, right? In the first Passover, Caiaphas is suggesting one man should die for the people. And that man should be Jesus. John inserts that reminder in our text here in John chapter 18. And he does so deliberately because since the very beginning of this gospel, remember even two times in chapter 1, John had identified Jesus as being the Lamb of God. Do you remember that? Behold, John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Twice in chapter 1, we saw Jesus identified as the Passover lamb. And this theme of Passover has come up again and again in the Gospel of John. Jesus is either at the Passover or or he's going to the Passover or it's around the Passover time. This, This theme keeps coming up all the way through the Gospel until we get to chapter 12 when we're told that this is the Passover. That the hour has come. The hour appointed by the Father. And remember, just a a little bit ago in our text, in John 17, when Jesus steps into that role of the great high priest and he's praying for his own people to his Father. And do you remember what he says there in that great prayer? He says, for their sake I consecrate myself. 
I set myself apart to be the sacrifice. So with all of that information in our minds, we come to these words this morning and the emphasis on the language of Jesus being bound. Just as the Passover lamb was bound before it was sacrificed, now the lamb of God is bound and led away to be readied for the slaughter. In other words, right at the beginning of our text here, as we're reading this, we're being reminded that this evil that is about to occur, the murder of Jesus Christ on the cross, this evil is not outside the bounds of God's control or of God's will. That God actually overrules evil for his own purposes, doesn't he? That's not to say that that negates human responsibility, though. Do you remember six weeks later from this point into the future, Peter is going to stand up on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, and he's going to say to the people of Jerusalem, you crucified, you killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. And in the same verse, he's also going to be able to say that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Right on track. Right on mission. Right on God's timeline. The bound Jesus, though, as we first see this in the text, highlights a problem for us, doesn't it, as believers? You know, we find ourselves from time to time in our human experience, as we look around this world in which we live, sometimes we see what, what looks to be an apparent failure of God. Now, a lot of times we wouldn't just come out and say that, right? Because we believe God is in control and God is greater and God's will will be accomplished. But sometimes we're tempted to think that way. When evil triumphs, when sin abounds, when heaven seems silent, when some healing doesn't come, when victory is not given, when we see the, the deconstruction job being done on our faith by the popular media, when we read about the struggle of fellow believers in difficult places in the world, sometimes we can just sit back and get overwhelmed by the fury of the enemies of Jesus Christ all around us. So, then try to put yourselves in the disciples' sandals. And imagine watching, their watching, Jesus the Son of God, who had just knocked them all down with his speech, being taken away by the soldiers, being pushed, being jostled, being mocked, leading him away. And you know, of course, the truth is, in the case of Jesus, just as it is the case in our world, that the victory of the world over Christ, the world over Christ, is always more apparent then it is real, isn't it? The language of Psalm 2 
came to the mind of the early Christians when they reflected on their experience before the resurrection. You know, as they themselves were being persecuted, they remembered the language of Psalm 2. It begins with the nations raging, the peoples plotting, the kings of the earth setting themselves, and the rulers taking counsel against the Lord and His anointed. That's verses 1 through 3. Sounds a lot like what the Sanhedrin was doing that night. And that psalm responds in verse 4 of Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Because he knows what's actually going on. And whose will is actually being accomplished. And it's his But there is, as we begin to read this text this morning, verses 12, 13, 14 here, as Jesus is bound as he's led away, there there looks to be, there's an apparent failure. Apparent, not real. Secondly, let's look at real weakness. And this takes us into the story of Peter, verses 15 through 18. And then we'll look a little later down verse 25 through 27. If we're going back to the silent picture days, the scene's changing now, right? We're moving from Jesus being bound to Peter betraying. Betrayal is an ugly word, isn't it? I wonder if you've experienced it in your life. Maybe you remember as a youngster, so many of us had the uh, the experience of the class bully approaching us at school. As you stand there with your friends and one by one, your friends kind of move away leave you to face the bully alone. Perhaps it was a trusted colleague at work who went behind your back to promote their own chances at promotion or job security, and you ended up being sidelined or maybe even losing your job. And worst of all, maybe someone in this room has experienced the betrayal of a loved one who You have placed your trust in. Boy, does that hurt. Political, professional, and personal betrayal is an unfortunate part of a sinful human experience in this world. And it is an essential part of Jesus' story on this dark night. The story of Peter, as we read it here, is told by one of the several eyewitnesses to the details. John refers here in verse 15 to another disciple. That other disciple is not named, but likely is John himself. John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's careful not to name himself in his own gospel, probably out of humility. And here he talks about another disciple who was present, who let Peter in nearer to the fire. Now let's remember for a minute who Peter was. Peter is an intimate disciple of the Lord Jesus, is he not? Called in the very earliest days of Jesus' ministry. Peter is the one, you remember, who Jesus said, his name is Peter, and he is the rock. That's what his name means, right? And not, not Dwayne Johnson, okay? This is Peter. Peter's the rock, Jesus says. And on his rock, 
And he's talking about the rock of his confession, which Peter had just said, that you are the son of the living God. On this rock, I will build my church. He's not talking about Peter as the first pope that God's going to build his church on. He's talking about Peter's confession that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what he's going to build his church on. But you name it, Peter's been there. When Jesus turned the water into wine, Peter was there. When the nets were so full of fish, Peter was there. He was one of the ones dragging in that great catch of fish. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when, 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 when the veil of Jesus' humanity was, was temporarily pulled aside to, to show forth some of his, his divine glory, and the voice of God came out of heaven, and Moses and Elijah are appearing, speaking with Jesus about the exodus that is to come through Jesus' death as the sacrificial lamb. Peter was there. He saw his glory. He writes about it later in his life, in his epistles. He writes about the fact that he was an eyewitness of Jesus' glory. When Peter fed the 5,000, right? This is men, not counting women and children, probably closer to 10,000 on that hillside. Peter was there collecting up the, the leftovers. Peter had seen the lame walk. He had seen the blind see. He'd seen the deaf hear. He'd seen the paralyzed dance. He'd seen the dead risen. He was always there. He's also the one who was foolish enough to pull out a sword the night Jesus was arrested, we saw last week. And yet as we follow the story here, and as Peter is led in to the closer circle near the fire in the courtyard, as he's going through the door, we find the servant girl at the door, verse 17, and she asks him a question. You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And what happens? In that moment, the rock turns to jelly. The confessing disciple becomes a denying coward. And if it can happen to Peter, brothers and sisters, it can happen to any one of us. Now, John doesn't try to psychoanalyze Peter's mindset through all of this. But there are a few lessons, I think, that we can learn from Peter's failure. If we just take a look at this in the other Gospels' accounts. The first thing to say about Peter is that he was overconfident. You remember when Peter said to Jesus, Lord, back in chapter 13, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Remember that? And Jesus said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. John 13, 37 and 38. On another occasion, Peter said to Jesus, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Matthew 26, 33. And I think Peter was being as sincere as he knew how when he said that. Many of us would make a similar claim. He did not consider, however, his own human weakness. And that night, when Jesus was betrayed in that garden, 
when the soldiers and arresting officers came with their torches and swords in massive numbers. Notice, do you remember from last week? Peter wasn't afraid. He drew his little dagger, you know, as he stood next to Jesus, ready to take them all on. Because he felt he was invulnerable standing next to Jesus. He'd done that once before, by the way. Do you remember? Matthew 14 tells us the account of Peter seeing Jesus walking on the water. Remember this? And he says, Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. And Peter hops out of the boat and starts walking on the water. Walking on the water. You ever done that? Me either. Maybe when, it, when it's iced over, you know, it's different. Yeah. This is in the middle of a storm. A tremendous windstorm on the Sea of Galilee. He's walking. And then when he looks around and he sees the wind, he sees the storm, he starts to sink, cries out for help. You know the story, right? But when... When, G- when Peter is near Jesus, he feels invulnerable. When he's in the garden standing next to Jesus, it feels like Superman. But not now. Not now. Not, not now that his master is bound and seems unable to help himself. And when the gate is opened by the servant girl, he is thrown into a panic. You don't belong to that Jesus gang, do you? And the answer he gives, I am not. Very dismissive. You know, right now, right now, where we live, in our time, being associated with Jesus in many places and in many situations seems very unfashionable. Seems against our best interests. Seems countercultural. Every man or, re- or woman reading this story in John 18 here gets the point. Every believer has been here at one point or another. You don't believe in that kind of thing, do you? Or on Monday morning, they'll ask you. So, what did you do over the weekend? What were you doing yesterday morning? Oh, I had a great lunch. Maybe did a little shopping. Some nice family time. Sometimes we kind of leave off the parts that we think might be a little controversial. Some of us think we can take the world on. Play the world at its own game. And win. But what we don't notice are the little compromises that we dig as a pit for ourselves. And we do it gradually. We do it gradually as we distance ourselves from Jesus and His people. As much by our silence as by our explicit denials. Peter was overconfident. And second, Peter had failed to pray. The other gospel writers tell us that in the garden, Jesus had earlier called on them to watch and pray with him. Do you remember that? The gospel writers then tell us that all of the disciples fall asleep. Jesus is agonizing in the garden and they are 
napping. And how often, brothers and sisters, do we walk into temptation? How often do we walk into harm's way? How often do we go into those times in our, in our utter self-confidence that we in our own powers of resistance can prevail? But we don't cry out to God. We don't pray. And then thirdly, I think a lesson we can learn from Peter is Peter was left standing with the enemy. Look at, look at verse 18 and also down at verse 25. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Do you know who's around the fire with Peter? It's the officers. It's the soldiers that had just arrested Jesus. In verse 5, this was said about Judas. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. See it? And by his denial of Jesus, he put himself in the same place as Judas, on the side of Christ's enemies. Jesus had said, if you're not for me, you're against me. Peter's putting himself there. He's putting himself in that place. Psalm 1 talks about this, doesn't it? As it describes kind of that downward progression of a person who walks in the counsel of the ungodly, of the wicked, who stands in the way of sinners. Here's Peter standing in the way of sinners. Here he is. You know, the story of Peter's betrayal and denial, it exposes something about all all of us. And it's this, that we underestimate the darkness of our own fallen human hearts. We don't realize what we're capable of. And like Peter, we may come to church on a Sunday morning and loudly express and profess our love and our loyalty to Jesus, and no doubt we mean it from the bottom of our hearts, but we have to be very careful not to put our confidence in our own strength of character. We must be careful that we don't think that somehow or other, just by saying it is true, that it's true. We've got to be guarding our hearts all the time. Notice thirdly, true strength. Verses 19 through 24. Are you ready for a scene change? Here we go. The scene shifts back to Jesus before Annas. This is all going on at the same time. This figure called Annas is a bit of a character. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about him. The high priest was someone who was appointed for life in the Jewish religion. And Annas had been a high priest from AD 6 to AD 15 for about 10 years. So... Quite a while. In this story now, we're about the year A.D. 30. Annas had been unseated by the Romans in A.D. 15. That obviously annoyed the Jewish population. They continued to call him the high priest because he was the high priest for life. 
And that's why sometimes in the Scripture you'll read about Annas the high priest and Caiaphas the high priest at the same time. It's not because Annas was still the high priest, but because they kept calling him the high priest out of respect. Although, as you'll see, they didn't really like him. But from that point on, the Romans made sure that the office was held for shorter terms. Well, Annas is a very bright man. He's not going to just slink away into quiet retirement. And so no fewer, get this, no fewer than five of his sons, a grandson, and now his son-in-law also became high priests. Annas was a kingmaker. More properly, the high priest maker. But Annas was not at all popular among the people, even though they respected his title. In fact, he was so hated by the Jews that they used his name as slang for donkey dung. There's a passage in the Jewish Talmud, which is a, a, a book of history about the Jews, that reads like this, Woe to the house of Annas! Woe to their serpent's hiss! They are high priests. Their sons are keepers of the treasury. Their sons-in-law are guardians of the temple. And their servants beat the people with staves. Unquote. That's how he's written about in their history. Well, let me tell you a little bit more about Annas from the Scripture here. Annas made a pile of money. He controlled the concessions in the temple. In fact, he turned the temple complex into kind of a theme park. When people came to worship at the temple, they had to pay their temple tax to get into the outer courtyards of the temple. But the temple tax had to be paid with temple money. And you could only get the temple money at the temple. And so you would come with your Roman coinage, and the first thing you'd have to do when you get to the temple gates is you'd have to exchange your Roman money for temple money so that you can then pay your temple tax to get into the temple. Guess who owned the exchange? Annas owned the exchange. So you come there to worship, And in those days, right, you would come to worship the Lord by having an animal or something to sacrifice. And before you could offer that as a sacrifice in the temple in these days, you had to have it checked to make sure it was an acceptable sacrifice. So, very conveniently, Annas organized a bunch of inspectors. You can see what's coming, can't you? They would meet you after you arrived, after you exchanged your money for temple money at a very high, exorbitant exchange rate. Then you pay your temple tax and come into the courtyard, and after you actually get into the outer area of the temple, then you would face the inspectors. And they would check out your lamb or your turtle dove or your pigeon, and if they found some defect, which... They would. They were able to point you in the direction of some stalls right over here where you could purchase with temple money 
only a lamb or a turtle dove or a pigeon at exorbitant prices. Now, you can understand maybe a little better why two times in Jesus' ministry, at the beginning and at the end, he'd gone into the temple and he had whipped the people out of there and said, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. Do you get it? It's very interesting, isn't it? And when they arrest Jesus, they take him to Annas. It's very personal. Jesus has interrupted his business a few times. And there are a number of illegalities that take place in the arrest and the trial of Jesus this night. In Jewish law, one was not permitted to question the defendant directly. What you would do is you would have character witnesses and you would you would interview and interrogate those witnesses who would speak on the defendant's behalf. And so there would be a questioning of those witnesses, and then you'd ask them what you need to know about the defendant. There would also be witnesses for the prosecution, and they would be interrogated. And we find that all of that procedure is put to one side and ignored. They begin by questioning Jesus. And Annas, in his position... And Caiaphas, his son-in-law, they represent Israel as a nation, the religious leadership of Israel, the Israel to whom the promise of the Messiah was given. And here is the Messiah standing in front of the leaders of Israel, and instead of welcoming him, they're threatened by his influence. They're offended by his claims, and they want him dead dead. Against that background, we find Jesus is a faithful witness. Annas asked him a question about his theology, verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus, the faithful witness, responds to this and raises some questions about the protocol of the trial. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. In other words, you could have asked thousands of people. What I teach is public knowledge. You've even been in the audience on many occasions. You've listened in the background. Everybody knows this. You've all heard me when I teach. Why are you asking me all of this? Look what Jesus goes on to say. I have said nothing in secret Verse 21, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. He's pointing them to the right way of conducting a trial. Go ask the witnesses. Those are the people you should have brought in. This is the legal and right thing that you should have done. Where are the people who have been listening to Jesus? Ask them what he's been teaching. This is an illegal procedure. At that moment, some minor official slaps Jesus in the face for talking to the high priest like that. The word means a sharp blow with the flat of the hand. Ironically, same thing happened to Paul over in Acts chapter 23 when he was talking to the high priest. 
In that situation, Paul called the high priest a whitewashed wall, a hypocrite. And Paul actually goes on to apologize for saying that because he didn't realize that the, high, that the man he was talking to was the high priest and that according to the law, you're not supposed to talk to the high priest in, uh, in that sort of way to speak evil of the high priest. But Jesus had nothing to apologize for. He had done nothing to apologize for. And he doesn't back down. He points out these continued illegalities. He points out the unfairness of this sham of a trial. And Annas can't get his way. He can't get Jesus to say what he wants him to say. He sends him along to Caiaphas for further interrogation. And as we'll see next week, on to Pilate from there. Meanwhile, at the same time, back at the fireside, Peter denies Jesus two more times, just as the Lord had predicted he would. We're familiar with the account. It's a stunning, terrible record of humiliating failure. Peter is not a faithful witness. Jesus is a faithful witness who stands for the truth. Do you see the contrast that John is presenting here? When they come to arrest Jesus and they tell him that they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, back in verses 1 through 11, remember what Jesus says? I, I am. The girl says to Peter, you're not one of his disciples, are you? Peter says, I am not. See the contrast? I wonder, have you ever denied the Lord Jesus? Maybe you're embarrassed. Maybe you're taken off guard. Maybe you can identify with Peter here, not with Jesus. But you know, in the Bible, there is a massive difference between Judas Iscariot and Peter. We're going to see how that demonstrates itself some other time. But for this morning, let me just put it like this. Judas and Peter do the same thing. Judas and Peter both deny Jesus. Judas and Peter both disown Jesus. Judas does it as a hard-hearted unbeliever. Peter does it as a weak believer. And for Peter, his failure is not final. Some of you can testify to that, can't you? Maybe all of us. You failed in your life, perhaps. Maybe you even have come to church here this morning in order to lick your wounds a bit, to regain something of your integrity, to allow the Word of God to, to wash over you, to cleanse you, to restore you, to renew you. And as in Peter's case, your story isn't finished yet. At the time here on the surface, it looked like Peter's threefold denial, it looks like on, on, the, on the face of it, it's, this is an unmitigated disaster. Peter, what are you doing? And yet his failure was not outside the will of God. 
God didn't choose Peter and save Peter because he thought he would be a great guy. Jesus had told Peter back in chapter 13, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. Over in Luke 22, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, that you would strengthen your brothers. That's exactly what happens. And we'll see that when we get to John 21. God chose Peter knowing all about that. If you're a believer, God chose you knowing all about you. Not only your past before you became a Christian, but your present. He knew it all. He knows it all. And Christ is in control even of this. And he would use this for Peter's good and for other people's good. I just want to say to you this morning, if you're struggling with the pain of failure when it comes to your relationship with Christ, it isn't over until it's over. And if you feel a failure, and if you're covered in shame, as Peter was when he heard that rooster crow, know something. God is not finished with you yet. He may not use you the way he did before. Sometimes we have to live with the consequences of our actions. But we may still be of great service to him before we hear him call us home or call us up to the skies on the last day. John doesn't record in his account the curses that Peter makes in his third denial or the bitter tears that follow the rooster crowing. He doesn't mention as the other Gospels do, that Jesus turned at the moment of the rooster crow and caught Peter's eye. That's because this account isn't really about Peter. It's about Jesus. Peter wanted to follow Jesus. He actually said he wanted to die for Jesus. But he can't do that he can't do that until Jesus has died for him. There would come a day when Peter would die. Crucified upside down. History says because he said he was unworthy to die the same way Jesus died. I'm going to ask the praise team if they'd come back to the front. We'll prepare for our final song. As they're coming, notice there have been three men in this part of the story. Jesus, Peter, and Annas. And, I'm, and, in the, and as a part of these three, we have the official representative of the Jewish religion, the high priest. 
We also have the official leader of the band of disciples, Peter. Of these three, only Jesus. Only Jesus is the faithful witness. In Revelation 1, verse 5, Jesus is called the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Later on in Revelation, he's called the faithful and true word of God. And here, we need to remember the reason for Peter's denial. Why did he deny Christ? Because in his mind, he couldn't believe that all of this that was happening was necessary. In his mind, he couldn't understand how this self-humiliation, how this self offering of Jesus fit into the purposes of God. Peter had to learn some things. That there is only one Savior, one Lord, one sin-bearer, one great high priest, one everlasting friend. That's what Jesus had called Himself earlier in the night. Remember? John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. And Peter had to learn the lesson that you and I need to learn. And this is the takeaway that I want you to take away with you this morning if you're a believer. The Apostle Paul summed it up, I think, very well in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13 when he said, if we are faithless, that's Peter in this moment. And many times, that's you and me. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Jesus, what a friend for sinners like you and me. If you've never come to know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, this morning I welcome you to turn your life over to the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe that he is the Son of God who loved you, who died on the cross for your sins, who rose triumphantly from the grave, and who lives today to love you, to help you become holy and righteous, to give you purpose in your life that lasts beyond this life into eternity, to give you a home in heaven, to put eternal life into you, to take your punishment so that you don't have to suffer for your sins because Jesus already did on the cross. And friend, if you're here and you have never turned your life over to the Lord Jesus, asked Him to be your Savior, decided to step out in faith and become His follower, there is no better day to do that than today. And just after this service concludes, in just a few moments, we're going to have a song, we're going to have a brief um, members meeting, and then as we head out to our small groups and our ABF classes this morning, if you want to stay for just a few moments... And we'll have a counselor up here in this cubicle to your left in the corner of the room that will be happy to take the Bible and pray with you and show you how to take those first steps in following Jesus. And we'd love to help you with that. Let's stand now, brothers and sisters, and let's just praise the Lord Jesus. Can we do that?
Let's praise the Lord Jesus for being such a wonderful, faithful friend to sinners like you and me who are often faithless, just like Peter was. Let's sing together.